Section 7 of The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Melanie Young. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. Edited by Francis Rotwheeler. Zoology. Chapter 5 Insect Social Communities Part 1 The study of the habits of solitary wasp and bees and the transitional forms between these and the social kinds give the clue to the method of development of these great insect societies and helps to explain many features of their life otherwise incomprehensible. In the first place, it is evident that their activities center largely around the care for the young. The larva develops from the egg as a helpless, footless maggot, unable to forage for itself, unable to protect itself from enemies. It is dependent, among bees and wasps, upon the food supplies stored up in the cell with the egg. Among ants, it is fed directly by the workers by regurgitation from their crops. Solitary wasps form a group to be considered by themselves. Thus, the digger wasp, or sphex, does not live in communities, but the females make separate nests, one for each egg, provisioning them with insect prey which they sometimes kill, but more generally merely paralyze beforehand by stinging them. J. H. Fabre describes their habits in his Insect Life as follows. The nests may be of mud and attached for shelter under leaves, rocks, or eaves of buildings, or may be burrows hollowed out in the ground, in trees, or in the stems of plants. The adult wasp lives upon fruit or nectar, but the young grub or larva must have animal food. And here the parent wasp shows a rigid conservatism, each species providing the sort of food that has been approved by its family for generations one taking flies, another bugs, and another beetles, caterpillars, grasshoppers, crickets, locusts, spiders, cockroaches, aphids, or other creatures, as the case may be. The solitary wasp mates soon after leaving the nest in the spring or summer. The males are irresponsible creatures, aiding little, if at all, in the care of the family. When the egg-laying time arrives, the female secures her prey, which she either kills or paralyzes, places it in the nest, lays the egg upon it, and then in most cases closes the hole and takes no further interest in it, going on to make new nests from day to day. In some genera, the female maintains a longer connection with her offspring, not bringing all the provisions at once, but returning to feed the larva as it grows, and only leaving the nest permanently when the grub has spun its cocoon and become a pupa. The egg develops in from one to three days into a footless maggot-like creature which feeds upon the store provided for it, increasing rapidly in size and entering the pupal stage in from three days to two weeks. In the cocoon, it passes through its final metamorphosis, emerging as a perfect insect perhaps in two or three weeks or, in many cases, after the winter months have passed and summer has come again. Probably no solitary wasp lives through the winter, those that have come out in the spring or summer perishing in the autumn. The habit common to almost all of the solitary wasps, says Kellogg, of so stinging the prey 
caterpillars, spiders, beetles, flies, bugs, or whatever other insects are used to provision the nest, as not to kill but only to paralyze it, is perhaps the most amazing part of all the interesting behavior of all these wasps. The advantage is obvious. Killed, the prey would quickly decompose, and the hatching carnivorous wasp larva would have only a mass of, to it, inedible, decaying flesh, instead of the fresh live animal substance it demands. But if stored unhurt, the prey would, if a cricket or spider or similarly active animal, quickly escape from the burrow. Or if a caterpillar or weak bug at least succeed, albeit unwittingly, in crushing the tender wasp egg by wriggling about in the underground prison cell. More than that, unhurt, some insects could not live without food the many days that are necessary for the development of the wasp larva, especially in the face of the frantic and exhausting efforts they would be impelled to in their attempts to escape. But paralyzed, there is no exertion, metabolism is slight, and life without food is capable of being prolonged many days. The paralysis is due to the stinging by the wasp of one or more of the ganglia, or nerve centers, of the ventral nerve cord. The amazing expertness and accuracy displayed in plunging the sting into exactly those spots where injury will give rise to exactly that physiological phenomenon in the prey that will make it available for the special conditions attending the wasp larva's sustenance. This adroitness and this seeming knowledge of the structure and the physiology of the prey have led some entomologists to credit the solitary wasp with anthropomorphic qualities that are quite unwarranted. The whole behavior is probably explicable as a complex and advantageous reflex or instinct developed by selection. Similarly, the whole course of the nest building and provisioning is an elaborate performance wholly for the sake of the young, which the mother will likely never see. And these young in turn will, if females, do the same thing, perfectly and in essentially if not exactly the same manner, without ever previously seeing such remarkable processes performed. All these complex and altruistic habits have naturally led to much speculation concerning their origin and their relation to psychical conditions. Whether a consciousness of what is being done and an intelligence is brought to bear upon its doing, whether we may contribute to the wasp a psychical state with its attributes of cognizance, reason, and emotion. These are questions which are debated warmly. The consensus of opinion, however, is distinctly adverse to reading into the behavior of Ammophila or any of its allies' anthropomorphic attributes of reason, consciousness, or emotion. The fixity and inevitableness which is preeminently characteristic of the behavior of the wasp and the fact that each female is, ab ovo, adequate to carry through the complex train of actions without teaching, experience, or opportunity for imitation, practically prove all this seeming marvel of reasoned care for the future young to be an inherited instinct incapable of essential modification except by the slow process of selection through successive generations. The social wasp, hornets, yellow jackets, and such, live in great communities of males, females, and a third caste, the neuters or workers. These last are in reality sterile females, taking no part in the reproduction of the race, but take charge of the building and caring for the nest of the community, bringing food and rearing the young. The life history of a community in general outline is given by Kellogg as follows. 
In the early spring, fertilized females, or queens, which have hibernated as adults in sheltered places, as crevices in stone walls, under logs, stones, etc., come out from their winter hiding places and each makes a small nest containing a few brood cells. In each cell, an egg is laid, and food consisting of insects, killed and somewhat masticated, is hunted for and brought to the larvae throughout their brief life by the queen. The larvae soon pupate in the cells and in a few days issue as winged wasp. They are exclusively workers. These workers now enlarge the nest, adding more brood cells in which the queen deposits eggs. The bringing of food and the care of the young now devolve on the workers. The new or second brood also is composed of workers only, and these immediately reinforce the first brood in the work of enlarging the nest and building new brood cells. Thus, through the summer, several broods of workers are reared until the late summer or early fall a brood containing males and females, as well as workers, appears. The community is now at its maximum, both as regards population and size of nest. In the species Vespa, which make the great ball-like aerial nests, the community may grow to number several thousand individuals. The males and females mate, presumably with members of other communities, but no more eggs are laid, and with the gradual coming on of winter, the males and workers and many of the females die. There persist only as survivors of each community a few fertilized females. These crawl into safe places to pass the winter. Any social wasp found in wintertime is thus almost certainly a queen. Those of the queens which come safely through the long winter found the communities which lived through the following season. The social wasp of the genus Vespa, the familiar yellow jackets and hornets, are the ones which build the large subspherical nest familiar to all outdoor observers and related to much boyish adventure. Inside the great globe are several horizontal combs of brood cells and tears, all enclosed by several layers of wasp paper. The large, bald-faced hornet, Vespa maculata, is the best-known builder of the globe nests. The smaller yellow jackets, Vespa germanica, Vespa cuneata, build in hollows in stumps or stone fences or underground. Such protected or underground nests are not as thoroughly or thickly enveloped in paper as are the exposed arboreal globe nests. The miniature queen nest of the Vespa with the single little brood comb inside, may often be found by careful searching in the spring. The long-bodied, blackish wasp of the genus Polistase builds single exposed horizontal combs out of wasp paper, or chewed wood, which are attached to the underside of porch roofs, eaves, ceilings of outbuildings, etc., by a short central stem. The little comb made by the queen may contain but half a dozen cells, but after the workers hatch, many other cells are added around the margin. But the nest and workers never compare in size and numbers with the large communities of Vespa. Among all the wasps, the adult feeds upon nectar of flowers, but the larva is fed on insects, paralyzed or freshly killed. The solitary kinds store up food and place it in the cell with the egg. The social wasp do not, but the queen at first and afterward the workers forage for insects, which they bring in constantly and feed to the larvae, 
in a killed and partially masticated condition. Bees differ from wasps in that the young larva, as well as the adult, is fed upon the nectar and pollen of flowers, converted into honey and bee bread instead of upon insect food, as in the wasp. The structure of the mouthparts and the instincts of the bee differ accordingly. There are a great many kinds of solitary bees, but the social bees, the wild bumblebee and the hive bee, are by far the most familiar. In the solitary bees, there are only males and females. In the social bees, as in social wasps, there are males, females, and workers. The bumblebees nest underground, occupying and enlarging a mouse hole or small burrow, and the life history of the community is much like that of the wasp. They do not make honey cells, but mix pollen and honey to a pasty mass, deposit a few eggs upon the mass, and in the later stages of the nest build waxen cells for the larva to pupate in. The honeybees, Melipona and Apis, have a much more elaborated community life, and unlike the wasp and bumblebees, this does not terminate with the summer, but is continuous from season to season. The meliponas are tropical bees, stingless or nearly so, living in immense communities whose life history is not completely known. The better-known hive bees, Apis, are native to the Old World, but domesticated and introduced everywhere. The habits and life history of the great hive bee communities have been more carefully studied than any other phase of insect life. Yet there are many unsolved problems, especially in regard to the interpretation and meaning of their behavior. A well-written and reliable account of the life of the hive bees is given in Jordan and Kellogg's Evolution and Animal Life, from which the following may be quoted. An interesting series of gradations from a strictly solitary through a gregarious to an elaborately specialized communal life is shown by the bees. Although the bumblebee and the honeybee are so much more familiar to us than other bee kinds, that the communal life exemplified by them may have come to seem the usual kind of bee life, yet, as a matter of fact, there are many more solitary bees than social ones. The general character of the domestic economy of the solitary bees is well shown by the interesting little green carpenter bee, Serotina dupla. Each female of this species bores out the pith from five or six inches of an elder branch or raspberry cane and divides this space into a few cells by means of transverse partitions. In each cell she lays an egg and puts with it enough food, flower pollen, to last the grub or larva through its life. She then waits in an upper cell of the nest until the young bees issue from their cells when she leads them off and each begins active life on its own account. The mining bees, Andrina, which make little burrows in a clay bank, live in large colonies, that is, they make their nest burrows close together in the same clay bank. But each female makes her own burrow, lays her own eggs in it, furnishes it with food, a kind of paste of nectar and pollen, and takes no further care of her young. Nor has she at any time any special interest in her neighbors. But with the smaller mining bees, belonging to the genus Helictus, several females unite in making a common burrow, after which each female makes side passages of her own, extending from the main or public entrance burrow. As a well-known entomologist has said, 
and Drenna builds villages composed of individual homes, while Halictus makes cities composed of apartment houses. The bumblebee, however, establishes a real community with a truly communal life, although a very simple one. The few bumblebees which we see in wintertime are queens. All others die in the autumn. In the spring, a queen selects some deserted nest of a field mouse or a hole in the ground, gathers pollen which she molds into a rather large, irregular mass and puts into the hole, and lays a few eggs on the pollen mass. The young grubs, or larvae, which soon hatch, feed on the pollen, grow, pupate, and issue as workers, winged bees a little smaller than the queen. These workers bring more pollen, enlarge the nest, and make irregular cells in the pollen mass, in each of which the queen lays an egg. She gathers no more pollen, does no more work except that of egg-laying. From these new eggs are produced more workers, and so on until the community may come to be large. Later in the summer, males and females are produced and mate. With the approach of winter, all the workers and males die, leaving only the fertilized females, the queens, to live through the winter and found new communities in the spring. The social wasp, as with the bees, there are many more kinds of solitary wasp than social ones, show a communal life like that of the bumblebees. The only yellow jackets and hornets that live through the winter are fertilized females or queens. When spring comes, each queen builds a small nest suspended from a tree branch or in a hole in the ground, which consists of a small comb enclosed in a covering or envelope open at the lower end. The nest is composed of wasp paper made by chewing bits of weather-beaten wood taken from all fences or outbuildings. In each of the cells, the queen lays an egg. She deposits in the cell a small mass of food consisting of some chewed insects or spiders. From these eggs hatch grubs which eat the food prepared for them, grow, pupate, and issue as worker wasps, winged and slightly smaller than the queen. The workers enlarge the nest, adding more combs and making many cells, in each of which the queen lays an egg. The workers provision the cell with chewed insects and other broods of workers are rapidly hatched. The community grows in numbers and the nest grows in size until it comes to be the great ball-like oval mass which we know so well as a hornet's nest, a thing to be left untouched. When disturbed, the wasps swarm out of the nest and fiercely attack any invading foe in sight. After a number of broods of workers has been produced, broods of males and females appear and mating takes place. In the late fall, the males and all of the many workers die, leaving only the new queens to live through the winter. End of Section 7 Recording by Melanie Young